exactly why he lived the life that we should live perfectly but we failed to do that's exactly why he died on the cross because we have failed and that is exactly why he rose again to conquer the sin and the death of our lives so we have to come to Jesus and we have to confess that stuff to him and say Lord you know that this has been my story these are the struggles in my heart Lord and I want you to do a work in me and you know what happens when you do that you are forgiven and God does a work in you When it comes to the commandment concerning adultery, there can be huge emotions surrounding difficult histories. Pastor Daniel is going to talk about the sacredness of marriage in today's message. But if this subject makes you want to turn off the sound or just skip this one, stay right where you are. You'll be reminded today that Jesus already knew about every mistake and that that is exactly why he came, to bring you new life. Now here's Pastor Daniel in Deuteronomy chapter 5 as he continues his message, The Big Ten. Let's open up in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 as we continue our study as slow as it may be through this second telling of the Ten Commandments. That's why we're calling this series Refresh, because the children of Israel are on the precipice of the Promised Land. They're right there. It's time for them to enter in, but the adults, the generation who first heard the law at Mount Sinai have all perished in the wilderness. The only ones who are still alive is Moses, and he's sharing it, and he's going to go home to be with the Lord by the time he's done, and then Joshua and Caleb, but all the other generation who were a part of hearing the first telling of the law as adults in Sinai are all going to be gone. And so Moses is giving a refresher course to this next generation of this is what God's word says. This is what his law is. And in a lot of ways, the centerpiece of the law is the Ten Commandments, the big ten. And you have to remember, and I keep saying this because I want to make sure we really get this, that many people just think that God's law only has 10 commandments in it. But actually, rabbis have counted it that there's actually 613 unique laws in what we would call the law of Moses or the Torah. That's the Hebrew word for law. And so the 10 commandments are the unique 10 because they were the 10 that were written by the finger of God and placed on tablets of stone and handed to Moses. These tablets which he brought down, remember when Moses first brought the law down, they were having a wild party and they were worshiping an idol and Moses smashed those tablets of stone in protest of what they were doing and God ended up giving him a second set. In a lot of ways, you see God's grace in that, right? He ruined the first set. God's like, I'll give me another set, don't worry. But what's interesting, and somebody said it to me recently, they said, so Pastor, what I don't get is if the Ten Commandments are the unique ones, when they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Why aren't those in the Ten Commandments? And that's a great question. And what you have to realize is that in a lot of ways, the Ten Commandments give us 
an understanding of the details of how to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and how do we love our neighbor as ourselves. It gives us 10 parameters, so to speak, in that. As we did the Art of Living series, I keep saying that all of us live upward, inward, and outward. We love God, we learn how to love ourselves based on the love of God, and then we love into the world and we love our neighbor. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's upward, inward, and outward. The first set of commandments is, how do we love God? And we saw things like, well, if you're going to love God, then you, would, you have to love the true and living God. You should have no other gods before him. In a culture where there's all sorts of types of worship, just like today, you put the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You put the God of the Bible, and you love that God. Not this version of God or this other version of God. The true and living God, the creator and sustainer of all things. So first you love the true God. Then you don't make a carved image, right? You love the true God in the proper ways. God doesn't want us to make images of God. And in that culture, there was all sorts of statues of gods that they worshipped. And it's very easy for people to venerate things that they create. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that we're not supposed to worship what has been created, but the Creator. It's so important. So one of the ways that we love God is with the words that we use. And the way that we live, we don't take God's name in vain. And that begins to speak about the testimony of our lives. Remember, God's name, people want to localize it to the, the name of God. Like, you shouldn't use God's name in a pejorative way, and that's true. But you know that the name denotes the entire nature. When it talks about God's name, it's not about the letters in God's name. It's not even about what that name, the proper pronunciation. It's about the nature of God. Just like if you think of your, if someone thinks of your name, they think of whatever your Facebook profile picture is. You know what I mean? They think about the totality of who you are. And so the name denotes the nature. And so when we take God's name in vain is when we call ourselves by the name of God, but we don't live in such a way that the testimony reflects the name of God. And it's such a strong call to each one of us to live the way that the Spirit of God prompts us to live because of the finished work of Jesus. So when the Bible says, don't gossip, then guess what? We shouldn't gossip. And when the Bible says, do all things without grumbling and complaining, we should not grumble and complain. And when it says that we should forgive somebody, then we say, well, Lord, I don't know how to do that. He's like, well, look, I've forgiven you. Let me explain to you how I forgave you and what it all means. And I forgave you. Oh, you go forgive that person. You're like, okay. You know, and all along the way, we want the testimony of our lives to declare to the world that Jesus is real. And that's, we take God's name in vain, not only with our words, but with the content and the overflow of what our lives look like. And it's a strong call to, to look at what we're doing. And then you have something like, we love God and we love ourselves and we love our neighbor by taking a Sabbath day. God wants us to rest, to recharge. He wants us to daily, weekly, monthly, annually, to take time away to get your batteries. I'm just coming off of one of those. As a staff, the, the church gives me time to just kind of stop, not have to teach, not have to put a sermon together, not have to have 97 meetings in a day and all these different things that go on in my world. You know, and it's like, you just got to stop and you got to rest. You get recharged. You connect with the Lord. You connect with your family. Connect with yourself. Such an important thing. That's one of the ways that we love God is... And don't forget, and I said this many times, that when we take Sabbath, when we practice Sabbath, and Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath, 
where we stop working because we receive grace. But when you take time and rest, you're reminded that the world does not need you to continue. And that's a very important thing for humans, that the world will go on without you. The sun will come up, the sun will go down, all sorts of stuff gets done, and it's okay that you're not there. And we need to remember, because the only person who is essential for everything to continue is who? Is God. And our biggest issue is that sometimes we forget that God doesn't need us, although he loves us to be a part of it. And we need to be reminded. So we take our rightful place in our own hearts and in the world. And then you start moving into the more interpersonal things, like we saw that you should honor your father and mother, so that we talked about family and how God ordained the family and the primary discipling unit, the primary microcosm of relationships for people is meant to be the family, a, a man and a woman with their offspring raising up a family. You know, I was just reminded of this. My grandparents celebrated their 69th wedding anniversary. Amen. So cool. And it was funny because I was, you know, I was talking to them. I was on FaceTime. So there's nothing more fun when you're on FaceTime with your 92-year-old grandfather and your 89-year-old grandma because they don't quite get the technology. They got their thumb in front of the, the thing. Like, I can only see part of your face. Why? I can't. What? There's something else. That's your thumb, grandma. There's, you know, it's like. But I started thinking at over 69 years of marriage, like what kind of water's under that bridge? You know what I mean? Like, what kind of stuff have they seen? And you start asking them, like, Grandma, how'd you guys make it? She's like, ha, 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 I never owned a gun, you know? And, they get, you know? and my grandpa starts laughing and gives her a kiss. And it's like, it's super cute. But it's like, but like the amount of things that they have forgiven over 69 years of marriage, the health issues and the financial struggles and the what ifs and could happens and might happens. You know, and we're reminded that you see something like honor your father and your mother, and you're reminded that we should know this stuff because it's so baked into what we understand, but we don't really live this out as a culture. The family is unraveling in America, and couples are unraveling, children are unraveling, and you're like, this stuff should be so commonplace, we shouldn't even have to talk about it. And as a pastor, like, well, everyone knows this. And then you look around and you're like, wait a second. We know this, but we're not living this out inspired by the Spirit of God. And don't miss the fact that children learning how to obey their parents and authority is an essential part of children being raised up to be able to obey the authority of God in their life. And that's a huge thing. That when, you, when a child is raised not to honor his parents who they can see, how will a child or an adult ever learn how to honor God who you cannot see? And that's a huge piece of this. And so God has a plan in that. And then you move to something, and we've and we spent a lot of time on this, where in verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see, you shall not murder. And that word murder literally means to kill with malice aforethought. And you start thinking about it. I mean, obviously we know this. Like one of the ways you love your neighbor is by not killing them. It's pretty good, right? You could tweet that, you know what I mean? Like, but what's amazing is, is we live in a world full of death right now. It's like in our country, there's been the mass murder of over 58 million children who never got to be born. And then you see something like, you shall not murder. And we make something like it's a woman's rights issue. And listen, 
you have to think through what these things are. It's like, then you could say, well, you know, it was a German rights issue to exterminate six million Jewish people. Is that really the right argument for it? Now, listen, I know someone's going to say, well, you're a guy, you shouldn't say anything. So as if your gender should keep you from speaking out against injustice. It's like, if you shall not kill, then don't kill. And, and don't miss the fact that our country has been at war almost every day since all of us have been alive in some way, shape, or form. And is that the way it ought to be? I don't think so. I don't think so. So there's all these ways with you shall not murder that we need to think through. And it's not neat, it's not tidy, and it's not certain, but we have to think through it. And then we don't want to miss the fact that Jesus, of course, said that the problem with murder is not the act, it's the heart that gives way to the action. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that if you harbor hatred in your heart, then you've committed murder already. So Jesus realizes that at the heart of the law is the law of the heart. The reason people kill people is because they have a heart bent on hatred. And one of the things that I know is that in each one of our hearts, we struggle with hatred. There's always, and I, when I say there's always, it's a, I'm making a generalization. I always end up having someone say, well, I'm the one person who is not like, well, praise God. You know, so you're the one, you're the exception. There are all of us struggle in some ways with maybe a people group or a specific person or something where you're like, something's gone on where you just really, really wouldn't mind if they walked into the street and got hit by a semi. I just assume that everyone is like me in a way. <laughs> and listen, I have the beautiful gift as a pastor to be in process in public. So it's like, I just put my stuff out there because God's working on me too. But it's like, but, uh, oh, you're, don't cheer for me. Pray for me. <laughs> Cheering for me is the wrong thing. I'm like, oh yeah, but a lot, they like it when I hate people. <laughs> but you know, it's like, but like over time you get hurt and things go on and things happen and you find yourself just being like, you know, if they, if like the earth swallowed them up, I wouldn't mind, quite mind it, you know? And you kind of think like, you look at some of the stuff that's going on in the world today. Like, there's many people who are like, man, I, you know, I just, I just hope that, you know, the earth swallows up ISIS. And I'm not saying that we should, like, invite ISIS to be our roommates. But Jesus said, love your enemies. So does hate ever conquer hate? No. But Jesus teaches these things, and we have, to, we have to figure out where the rubber meets the road in our own lives by the power of the Spirit. How do we look at gross, horrible violence and injustice and not hate in return for hatred, but find a way to love? Not that you allow them to hurt you, but you do not give space for you to become exactly like what God sent Jesus to die on a cross for. So it's amazing how these commandments, as common as they are, as much as we know them, they're kind of nasty when you start thinking about them. There's fangs and there's teeth on those things that if you're willing to say, Lord, take my heart down into this word and let your spirit do a work, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of refining that God wants to do in our heart. And don't get me wrong, as we move into this next one, as I did all this as a recap, in Deuteronomy 5... Verse 18, it says, you shall not commit adultery. So one of the ways you love God and you love yourself and you love your neighbor is you honor the sanctity and the sacredness of the covenant of marriage. Now, 
we live in a culture that is wholly against this commandment because Jesus' interpretation of this commandment is that if you lust in your heart for another person, then you've committed adultery already. The reason somebody will act out on adultery in action is because there's a lusting in their hearts. Now, you have to realize that you might say, well, so that's great from this problem for a married person. I'm a single person. It's not my problem. No, it is your problem. And the reason it's your problem is because in the culture that this existed in, everybody was married. Like, people, it was arranged marriages. People got married very, very young. Our equivalent of high school age would be the age that people got married. Your marriages were arranged. And widows, it happened, but they were rare. And so it was a culture where everybody was married. And so the idea of a heart that lusts, one of the things that I always tell people is that a lustful heart is never cured by marriage. So the issue is a heart that wants what it's not supposed to have yet. And you have to realize that outside of marriage, when you act out sexually of whatever sort that it is, you actually are sinning against your future spouse. Now, I say this realizing that you go on the internet and you go on to every site and everything in our culture is actually driving men and women towards lust. Like I go, I love to, I like sports, so I read the sports page. You look at the little click ads at the bottom. Check out these pictures why the Prince of England or the, is the happiest man in the world and they're all pictures of his wife. Or this thing, or the Victoria's Secrets models, and all the guys on the internet for you girls, these guys who like, you know, they just look like they're just like, you know, perfect little chiseled specimens. <laughs> and you look at this perfect little chiseled specimen, and you look at your husband, and he's got his belly hanging out, and <laughs> he's got drool on his chin, and he's coughing, and you're like, y- y- <laughs> like, good Lord, right? Like, come on, Lord, how much? You know, and I bring all this up to say we live in a world that is our economy is driven by lust. And then you read something like you shall not commit adultery and then you hear Jesus's interpretation and you realize we got a big problem. Why is our culture have a broken sexuality? And it's not our culture. Every culture has a broken sexuality. You have to think about this. The union of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, in physical intimacy, is an act of worship. It is the physical manifestation of what God has done spiritually, socially, and emotionally when the two become one flesh. And that is something that is very, very powerful. And every time God creates a powerful picture, Satan's job is always to undercut it, to warp it, and to break it. Same thing with the spiritual gifts. When God is moving in power of the spirit and spiritual gifts, there will always come the counterfeits. Why? Because if it can undermine something that has power, Satan wants to win. That's how you win. You take out the big guns, right? Like in military terms, back in the day, the the most celebrated leader had a special hat on. But then all of a sudden, someone realized, okay, so if the guy with the white hat, if we take him out, no one's going to know what to do. You take out the key thing, and then everybody disperses. And so then after a while, we're like, you know, we're just going to make the people who are the most decorated, we're going to make them look like everybody else on the battlefield, because we don't want them to be easy targets. 
In a lot of ways, human sexuality was created by God. We were created by God with sexuality for God's glory. But Satan says, okay, if this is for God's glory, and if this is the, the physical embodiment of a spiritual reality, the oneness, not only of a man and a woman in marriage, but of Jesus and his church in complete and total oneness, then we need to warp that thing real good. And in a fallen world with fallen hearts like ours, it's easy to take the bait. Because what our culture has done is it's divorced physical intimacy on every level of anything spiritual. Or you have, it's so sly, it's so malicious. Then you have the, no, we'll make it spiritual by making the physical act. We're just going to sprinkle spirituality on it. Which is like, but no, no, no. You're missing the God implications of human sexuality. And I think the problem is, is in a lot of ways, our culture wants to debase us just to bodies and just to animals. But guess what? You're so much more than a body. You are so much more than just a body. Yes, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God dwells in you. But it is a temporary dwelling place. You're more than, this body is temporary. And of course you get your resurrected body and it's all tricked out for eternity. That's a whole other discussion for another day. But the reality is you're so much more than a body. And it's amazing when you tell people that. You know, you're so much more than just a body. Like if everything you do is skin deep, then we call that superficial. The sexuality that we were created with is so much more than just superficial. It's deeply spiritual, so much so that in God's word, there's all these restrictions. Someone always says, I don't like the Bible. It's full of restrictions. No, no. Everything is full of restrictions. One of the ways you know what real love is, is to define it by what real love isn't. You have to express positive things in negative ways. When I said before God and before my family to my bride, Lynn, that you're going to be my wife, that means in loving Lynn, I cannot love any other woman the way that I love her. So in saying yes positively to my bride, I also said no to every other woman who I could ever meet. So within the yes is a series of no's that come alongside. And God loves the family, and he loves marriage, and he realizes that when we allow lust to reign in our hearts, we're going to bring that with us wherever we are. And we need to guard that. Now, I know many people are like, okay, so right now, Fusco, like, okay, I'm, I feel condemned, I failed, and listen... All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is exactly why Jesus came. And that is exactly why he lived the life that we should live perfectly. But we failed to do. That's exactly why he died on the cross. Because we have failed. And that is exactly why he rose again. To conquer the sin and the death of our lives. So we have to come to Jesus. And we have to confess that stuff to him. And say, Lord, you know that this has been my story. These are the struggles in my heart. Lord, and I want you to do a work in me. And you know what happens when you do that? You are forgiven and God does a work in you. Jesus is real. When it comes to sexual purity in marriage, we live in a culture that is actively trying to take us down. That's because the marriage bed is a physical picture of one of life's greatest mysteries the relationship between Jesus and the church. 
When God presents a powerful picture like this, the enemy only wants to twist, distort, or destroy it. Pastor Daniel showed us the purpose and heart of the seventh commandment today. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Daniel, and I want to be honest with you for a moment. Life is messy, and the hard reality is, if it isn't messy for you now, it will be, and it probably has been in the past. Did you know that you can still thrive in tough times? It's true, but only through the power of Jesus. That's the purpose behind my book, Honestly. I want you to know how to keep living your best life in Jesus, no matter the circumstances. You can find out more about it and get your own copy at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Hey, I wanted to remind you that each day on Facebook, Pastor Daniel shares a simple two-minute message. In this message, Pastor Daniel draws out an important biblical truth that really helps set your day on the right path. So be sure to follow Pastor Daniel Fusco on Facebook and share these two-minute messages with your friends and family. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel will share more about this commandment. We let our eyes stray and begin to think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Pastor Daniel has a strong answer for us. Stop watering someone else's yard and water your own. The best prevention for adultery is to tend to your own marriage first. It's time for us to give our spouses tender, thoughtful care. There's more to come from Pastor Daniel's series called Refresh. Please glance at the clock right now and make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus is Real Radio.